Uh, this morning, if you don't know me, my name is Rob. I am the lead pastor here at Citizens Church, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to go over the passage that we're in today, which is Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. And this time of year, um, I mean, it, November 1st has come, so we're obviously in Christmas season. And so, in my mind, Thanksgiving is, is a halfway point. It's halftime. You need a good meal. You need a day to shop to, to catch up on Christmas. And then you're in the second half of Christmas season. So now that we're in Christmas season, we are, our family, the whole house is covered in Christmas stuff. The tree's up. We've got eggnog. And one of the things that we like to do is go through certain movies during this time. And a great series of movies, which whatever you think about it, that we like to go through during this time is Harry Potter. And so Harry Potter, we just feel like is a Christmas winter type movie. So we end up going through that. Arguably one of the, our favorite series. Right up there is Narnia and right up there is Lord of the Rings. And so there's this debate. We don't need to get into that this morning. But Lord of the Rings is a, a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And one of the primary characters, Aragorn, is known as a hidden king. And the reason he's hidden is not because he's trying to flee from the throne and physically try to hide. It's because he is the rightful heir, but he has not yet taken the throne. He is waiting for strategic purposes. And this morning, we see this passage of three verses, verse 35, 36, and 37 of Mark 12. And we see an aspect of the rightful heir being revealed. He has not yet taken his throne, but we see a little bit more about his identity being revealed. So last week we went over the question of what does God expect of us? He said he expects undivided devotion, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that would lead to us loving our neighbors as ourselves. Recognize that we fall short of both of those things. The only one to do that perfectly was Christ Jesus, who loved God with complete devotion and loved others the way that he loves himself. He ended up giving himself up for us. This week, the question that we see is, what should we expect of the promised Christ? Last week, what does God expect of us? So now, what, this week, what should we expect of the promised Christ? And what we'll see in the passage, Lord willing, is that because Christ is preeminent, because he's before all things, he is deserving of our glad submission. So what will we learn about the promised Christ this morning? That he is preeminent and he is authoritative. So one of the good things about this passage is that it allows us to better understand the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we understand him better, we can serve him more faithfully. And as I was preparing for this passage, this passage, as we were going through Mark 12, Mark 12 is a longer chapter. This was the passage I was most dreading because it's three stinking verses. And in my mind, having 10 or 12 verses to work with, there's, there's plenty of stuff to work with there. Having 20 verses is, is almost too much, but there's still plenty. It's just a matter of keeping it within the time frame. Three verses is more challenging for me. And I was, I was talking with Michael about what week he wanted to jump in on this Mark series. And he said, well, not the week that 35 and 37 is. I don't know what you're going to do with that. <laughs> and so I, I really had to dig in because I wasn't sure 
what I was going to do with it. And it was really encouraging because as I was reading commentaries, I looked at R.C. Sproul's, and he says, to preach on this text in one sermon is almost blasphemous because it would take many, many weeks to touch deeply on all that is contained within this text. So you want to feel insignificant. <laughs> I'm looking at this thinking, how am I going to do this? And then look up to this guy. And he's like, man, one sermon, you can't get it all in. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to cover the, the main things here. But as you know, we've been going through the book of Mark. We're going passage by passage. And the primary thing that we're seeing is that it's God restoring his wayward people. We've gone astray. And he is restoring his people back to him. He's making a way to establish that relationship back with him as a holy God. And he does that through Christ. And so Jesus, in this chapter, has been hit with wave after wave after wave after wave of questions. And the way that the last passage ended was with the phrase, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So he's answered every question that the Sanhedrin sent him. Not only did he answer it, but he answered it in a way that silenced them. No one dared ask any more questions. It was almost like a dare to ask him another question because everyone had been silenced by his responses. And so this week, no one's asking him questions, but he turns the tables and he asks a question. So what we'll see is Jesus asking that question. We'll see David declaring the answer and we'll see the hearer's response. You see each of those three points in your bulletin there. So before we jump into Jesus's question here, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would guide our time and meet with us. Father, we are grateful for the privilege to gather. We are grateful for the sweet gift that it is to hear the voices of your people singing praises to your name. Help us to remember that this morning is all about you, not about us. Have the gospel be put on sweet display this morning through the music, through the prayers, through the reading, through the preaching, through the Lord's Supper. We pray that we would be reminded of the gospel, that we would be convinced of it, that our lives would reflect that. We pray for Living Hope Church in Powell and in Marysville as they proclaim this gospel. Bless them. Give them fruit. Allow people to come to Christ and to embrace the gospel, perhaps for the first time. Pray for Berlin Church, that they too would see fruit, as well as Good Shepherd Bible Church, a church plant. God, we ask that you would bless the, those congregations, and the way that you would bless them is with more of yourself. Lord, you were the greatest thing that we could ever experience. And so this morning, as we get ready to go into this passage, we are asking that you would give us more of yourself, that we would see in the text Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus is now turning the table. He's been hit with wave after wave after wave of questions, and now he gets to ask a question himself. In verse 35, we see Jesus taught in the temple, and when he was teaching, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of of David. 
Now, this is the first part of his question, and he elaborates a little bit more, but we'll get into that in the next point. But the first part of his question here, we see him teaching in the temple, which would not be uncommon for teachers. Notable teachers would teach in the temple. Jesus first entered the temple in Jerusalem in Mark 11. He had been previously doing his ministry throughout the region, and now he's entering into Jerusalem. Then he goes into the temple, restoring the glory of God back to the temple, and he teaches. And now we see him in the temple again. And Alistair Begg, commenting on this passage, says that the class has no more questions for the teacher, but the teacher has a question for the class. So these religious leaders had been peppering him, And now that they're done, he says, I have one for you. And so something to know about culturally speaking, to better understand the question that Jesus is asking, we need to know a couple things about the society that Jesus and the writers here found themselves in. Because Jesus' question, when he asks it, is a problematic one for Jewish culture. Now, why? So Jewish culture is a patriarchal society. So God uniquely, we affirm, because we see it in the scripture, God uniquely has designed men to lead in the family. And so in Jewish culture, that was very much so accepted, and it's essentially seniority rules. So the uh, oldest male had the most authority in the family. And so when Jesus is bringing this question, we have to keep that in the back of our minds. Uh, When I was growing up, we would go to Thanksgiving at my grandparents and all the cousins and aunts and uncles would be there and the kids got to sit at this fold-out flimsy table and it was the kids table and the adults got to sit at the nice big table that was dressed up for Thanksgiving It's because seniority ruled they had greater authority and greater prominence within the family and so in this culture same thing seniority rules and it's patriarchal society so the eldest male in the family is the one who has the greatest authority. We see the priority, this is why we see the priority of the firstborn throughout the Old Testament. We see um, certain blessings being given to the firstborn male in the family. We see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being brought up consistently throughout the Old Testament because they are patriarchs of the faith who God revealed himself to and began to set in motion a relationship with his people. We see David, who is Israel's greatest king. Israel, read throughout the Old Testament, you see how often they go astray. David, a man after God's own heart, takes the throne, and he is their greatest king. He's their greatest warrior. He ends up restoring the glory of Israel back to where it's meant to be. And even he is a fallen leader, but it's through him that God makes a promise. And he says that, David, you are a man after my own heart. You have received, I have used you to restore the glory to Israel. And I am making a promise to you that one of your descendants will reign on the throne eternally. So there's this promise to David as the, Israel's greatest king. And so when you hear about this son of David, that's what the writers are referring to. This descendant who is meant to reign eternally on the throne. David has a position of authority within the people of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also have positions of authority. And now we see the the firstborn of all creation, firstborn human, is Adam. So he has authority to represent us. And we know how 
that story goes in his representation of us, he chooses to rebel. And so now we all are in a fallen state in need of restoration, which is great considering the book of Mark is God restoring his wayward people. But it's bad news for us. But what we need to know about this is that if the Christ that Jesus brings up here, if the Messiah, that promised descendant, that promised Savior, if he comes from David's line, that would mean that he comes after David, which would imply that David has authority over him because David is the elder male. Does that make sense? However, when we see Jesus affirming this, he uses this understanding to reveal something about the Messiah. But something else before we even get there that he does end up revealing is that the wisdom of man is just insufficient, that it falls short. Jesus is taking this mutual understanding that they have of how the eldest male has the authority within the family, and he's using that in his statement to them. How can the scribes, the experts of the laws we talked about last, last week, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? They affirm this because they affirm the Old Testament that the, the Savior is, in fact, going to be in the line of David. And so the implication is that David has authority. He's greater than this descended Savior. But the Savior will indeed save. But he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Which right there, there's not too much controversy. But what we get into in this next point, we'll expound on the controversy. But before we do, we need to understand that the mutual understanding that Jesus is pulling out is to show that the wisdom of man is insufficient. They have just peppered him with questions. They have sent their wisest and brightest to him, and he has answered every question successfully. And now with one measly question, Jesus is going to prove to them that he's greater than their wisest religious leaders. For us this morning, are we depending on our own wisdom? like the religious leaders that came to Jesus, like the scribes, like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees? Are we depending on our own wisdom, or are we willing to humbly depend on God's wisdom, Christ's wisdom? We've been talking about patriarchy and patriarchal societies, which is a hot topic in today's society, and something to recognize is that patriarchy isn't a bad thing. There have been abuses of it, certainly. But we see here that the call is for men to lead. And so men, question, how are you leading? Whether you like it or not, you are leading. The question is, how are you leading? Are you leading in godly ways? Women, you are there to affirm godly leadership. Like it or not, us men do a lot of things to impress you. And if you are affirming ungodly leadership, then you're going to perpetuate ungodliness. Affirm godly leadership. When you see ungodliness, rebuke it. Maybe you're in a painful season this morning. Maybe you're not sure exactly how to navigate it. Jesus is himself, not only God incarnate, but as you read through the Proverbs, he is wisdom incarnate. James says that if any of you is lacking wisdom, ask. 
and it will be given to you. You might be going through a painful season and not sure how to navigate it. Ask the God of wisdom, wisdom incarnate, for wisdom, for guidance as to how you can go through a painful season in a way that still is honest and yet still honors God. In church, let's remind one another of God's wisdom. Let's point one another back to the flawless wisdom of our Savior and our King. And so Jesus' first point asks the question. And so now, as he continues his question, we see that David is the one who declares the answer. Jesus asks the question and he mentions David. He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So that first part in verse 36 where David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, Jesus is making a point. Like all biblical authors, they are used by the Holy Spirit to speak God's words. Now, for those of you, I mentioned Harry Potter earlier, so this might hit some people, it might not. For those of you who have seen the Harry Potter movies, there's a scene in the third movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, where Harry goes into one of his classes, and it's with Professor Trelawney. And he's met by her, and she is in a trance speaking a prophecy over him, and then she comes to, and she has no idea what she just said. She was completely out of control said what this prophecy was, and then she comes to and realizes, oh, hey, Harry, what's going on? That's not how the Holy Spirit uses the authors of Scripture. It's more like in 1978, the Chicago, there was a group of um, theologians, professors, pastors who came together to really nail down what we believe about the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture It's called the Chicago Statement, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I would encourage you to check it out. It's a short document, very easy to read, and very helpful. In Article 8, this is more like how the Holy Spirit uses his authors. It reads, We affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. So God uses the personalities and uses the literary styles of those whom he chooses to speak through. He doesn't override their personalities. That's why as you read through scripture, you'll see various different types of literature. See various different types of literary styles. Mark, for instance, uses the word immediately a lot. So as you read through the book of Mark, you'll see, man, he's kind of impatient. He just keeps saying immediately. Everything happened immediately. So you read through Luke, Matthew, John, it's less, less immediately. It's because they have different literary styles. And so Jesus is saying that David declared in the Holy Spirit. He's saying that this isn't just David saying it. This is God himself saying it. And what he says, or he's affirming 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says that David in the Holy Spirit says this. This is David, the greatest king of Israel, the one who has the greatest amount of authority, historically speaking, 
in Israel's history. And David is saying, and Jesus says, not only is David saying it, but David in the Holy Spirit is saying this, that the Lord said to my Lord. Now this phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, is quoted from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is quoted over 33 times in the New Testament. It's a very important passage, but he's quoting the first verse, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, if you look at Psalm 110 in verse 1 that's being quoted there, you see Lord twice. The first time you see Lord, it's in all caps. The second time, only the L is capitalized. As you read through your Bible, you might recognize, why is it Lord sometimes capitalized, all caps? Why is it sometimes only the first letter? The reason for that is when it's all caps, it's referring to God's name, Yahweh. When it's just the L is capitalized, it's referring to authority, like master. And so in Psalm 110, it uses both. So it's essentially saying, Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool saying God himself says to my master, sit at my right hand. And so if David, the eldest, the most authoritative in Israel, is saying God said to my master, but his master is someone who's descended down the line, you begin to see the problem. Because if he's descended down the line, he doesn't have authority over David. But David is saying that he's my master. And so Jesus is saying, how can that be? This is his question to the religious leaders. How can that be? How can David, who's older than the Savior, say that the Savior is his master? So if David calls the coming Christ his Lord, then that implies that the Christ has authority over him. And if Christ has authority, then that would imply that he comes before David. So God promised this descendant, this son of David, to come after David. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it neatly here. He says, David's son, David's descendant, could only be his Lord, his master, if he existed before him and after him. The only way David could call the son of David, his descendant, Lord, is if he existed before him, there's the authority aspect, and after him, because it's his descendant, the son of David. David, the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, is affirming in the Holy Spirit that the Christ has authority. He is joyfully submitting to that authority. And so, Christian, this morning, does Christ have authority in your life? I can tell you, that in the course of history, that the people of God would look on David as having much more authority and prominence than you. And yet David is affirming that the Christ is his Lord, that the Christ has authority over him. There are families in this room. Are you submitting your family to the authority of Christ? We talked about this last week, but one of the primary ways we do that is just with our schedules. Does Christ have first priority as you plan out your week, as you plan out your month. And if you are in that painful season, Christ's authority is comforting. Let me explain why. It's his authority that brought you to this place, to this season of life. And yet, 
Because of his authority, we know that every promise that he makes, he's able to keep. He promised the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, and he kept that promise because he's authoritative. He has the ability to. And so when his authority brings you to this painful season, something you can remember is what he told his people, that he will never leave them nor forsake them. And you can rest confidently in that promise because he has authority. Anyone in this room can say, hey, I'll always be there for you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But we don't have authority over our own lives. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Jesus has ultimate authority. He can make that promise, and you can know that he's going to keep it. So whatever season you're in, let Christ's authority be a comfort to you. And church, to be a compelling people, we must joyfully submit to Christ's authority. It's not compelling to an onlooking world if we are begrudgingly submitting to the king. Um, I know I'd really like to do this, but uh, Jesus says I shouldn't, so I'm not going to. That's not a compelling witness. Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you are joyfully submitting to the Savior, you are brought into his presence, and it's there where you will find pleasures forevermore. So we see Jesus asks the question. We see David declared the answer that the Christ is not only his descendant, but he is also before him. And now we get to see the hearer's response. We see that they are glad. Verse 37, and the great throng heard him gladly. They heard him gladly. So there's a crowd here watching all of these people. This is all taking place, commentators will say, on Wednesday of Holy Week. So all these questions from these various different groups came on the same day. And you can tell there's probably going to be a crowd starting to gather as they see one religious group try to take down another religious group. So a crowd's gathered, and this crowd is now considered to be great, a great crowd, a great throng of people. And so they see what's taking place. They see Jesus silencing the religious leaders, which any time the scriptures are opened and any time that the scriptures are rightly taught, two things should take place. The truth should be exalted and false teaching should be exposed. And Jesus here is exposing false teaching. He's silencing the religious leaders, but then he's also revealing more of who he is. And the response of the hearers, seeing and hearing the truth proclaimed by the son of David, as his identity is more fully revealed, we see the religious leaders back up and go away. And we see this crowd hearing him gladly. Jesus' words brought gladness. Do we hear God gladly this morning? When we hear things that are challenging to us, do we respond with gladness? When the scriptures challenge us in our reading, do we respond with gladness that God would reveal himself to us? Or do we try to justify ways to get around what seems to be the plain reading of the text? God allowing himself to be known by us is a joyous thing. He's a perfectly holy God. He does not need to reveal himself to fallen, sinful humanity who's rebelled against him, but he does. 
He kindly does. Have you thanked him for that? Have you considered the kindness of our king to condescend down to us, to make himself known to us? If you're not a Christian this morning, thank you for for being here. Thank you for even coming here and participating. I would ask you, have you considered the ways that God has tried to make himself known to you? Look throughout creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glories of God. Romans 1 talks about how we try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, like holding a basketball underwater in a pool. You can hold it down, but as soon as you let go, it's going to come right back up. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, let go. Let, start to recognize all the ways in which God has revealed himself to you in creation and even more so in the word that he has provided for us. Church, let's seek God together in that word. We just did a How to Study the Bible class this past Wednesday with the men. Luke taught and did a tremendous job. It was really encouraging to see things to notice in the text. We talked about observe, interpret, apply. So as you're looking at the text, observe what's there, interpret what the truth is, and then apply it for yourself. One of the most helpful ways in my personal observation as we go through that observe, interpret, apply is by asking three questions. It's ruin, redemption, and regeneration. That's not unique to me. That's from Charles Spurgeon. Those are the three things he would go over. So anytime you're reading a text, if you ask those three questions, how does this text point to our ruin? The fact that we are fallen, the fact that sin has entered in. The whole reason God has given us a copy of his word is because we are forgetful creatures and we're fallen creatures and we need it. If we weren't fallen, we wouldn't need his word. So how does this text, how does this passage point to our fallenness, point to our ruin? But don't stop there. Ask, how does God address it? How does he provide redemption? How does he address our fallen state? The portion of this text that it brings out, how does God address that? And then regeneration, what does it look like for a follower of Jesus, someone with a regenerated heart to live faithfully in light of that passage. Those are three questions and I meet up with guys. I just try to ask those things. If we're doing a, a Bible study, just, all right, let's go through it. Let's read it three times. First time, let's look for everything that points to our ruin. All right, we did that. Let's look at everything that points to the redemption that God has provided. All right, now how do we live in light of it? Just three helpful ways. And that's not the only way to study the Bible. There's plenty of different methods, but that one's been helpful for me. So as us as a church, as we try to be word-centered and as we try to center our relationships around the Word of God, a lot of us are meeting together, which is tremendous. Love that that's taking place. Be intentional. If you're going through a passage, look at some observations. Observe some things. Maybe ruin, redemption, regeneration will be helpful for you. But as God reveals himself, that should be a joyous thing. Whenever things are revealed, it can be joyous, or it can be less than joyous. And the way that God reveals himself, that should bring us joy. Some reveals are tremendous. We're in Christmas season, I told you. And on Christmas Day, there may be some gifts that are revealed that bring joy. Praise God for that. Or there may be things that are less enjoyable reveals. Last night, just trying to wrap this sermon up. I'm sitting on the couch at the table, and I look to my side, and there's a spider hanging down from the ceiling. Those of you who know, I hate spiders. So that was not a joyous 
reveal. That was a terrifying one. That spider is in a better place. And so, <laughs> been taken care of. But some, some reveals are great. They bring joy. Others don't. This morning, as Christ reveals more of himself, what's your response? Is there joy or is there concern? What should we expect of the promised Christ? As the question posed at the beginning, is that he is not only a savior. Not only is he a descendant of David, not only is he the son of David that will reign on the throne eternally, but he is also the Lord. He is also God himself. He has authority. He doesn't just save, but he also has authority in our lives. So in everything, we must joyfully and gladly, like these hearers who heard gladly, we must gladly submit to the authority of Christ. We must trust him not just as Savior, but also as Lord. Does Jesus being revealed bring gladness? like he did with the, those hearers? Or does he bring concern? Not only was the Messiah, was the Christ promised to come, but now he has come and he's revealing this, but he reveals also that he is not just the Messiah, he is God himself. He was before David and after David, and all of his enemies will be put under his feet, verse 36 in this passage. All of his enemies will be defeated. And he will rule in victory forever, for all eternity. And if you submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, then you too will reign forever with him. If you embrace him as your Lord, as your authority, as your master, if you trust him as your savior, you will be saved. And when he is revealed on that day, there will be great gladness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for ultimately and most clearly revealing yourself through the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for fulfilling your promise to provide a Savior. And thank you for being our Savior. We pray that you would help us as we go from here to submit to you as Lord and as Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.